Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm delighted today to be joined by a man who's done it all on his CV from boxing in the Olympics to winning major titles in the professional ranks, British, European, WBA World, IBO, the lot. Brian McGee, welcome to Rocky Road Rewind. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing well. I'm uh, excited to be on. Thanks very much for having me. No problem. Uh, Brian, we were watching you on the TV this week, uh, the True North Life After Boxing show. Yes. It was an interesting show. You, you gave you gave some great answers, and it was just a, d- a deep story about what happens. How is life after boxing? It's very, very tough. I thought boxing was hard, and then when you go back into real life, you realize, Jesus, boxing was pretty easy, you know, because it was something I loved. Yes, you have the hard days of training, getting up every day training, and you have the knocks of up and down, but when you, after boxing, you realize you love it. There's a big void in your life, and then you realize, you know, you had it well, doing something you love, training very hard. It's like the old saying, if a new... What I, what I know now, back then, I know I probably would have given it even... I, I thought then I was giving it everything I had, and I did put a lot into boxing, but, you know, you thought, fuck, you know, I would actually made an extra harder effort. So my advice to all up-and-coming fighters, you know, it is it is a golden time to be boxing now, be able to box and be able to fight, and boxing now is bigger than ever. So give it everything you have. Yeah, like, it, it painted a contrast in tail, didn't it? Like, a lot of... You know, it can lead to dark days after boxing. Did you experience those yourself after hanging up your boots? Oh, 100%, yeah. I mean, just, I've had ups and downs through my boxing career, like a couple of times getting injured, where I thought I wasn't going to box again, to, you know, change promoters, not getting fights and stuff like that there. But when you actually decide to hang up, hang up the gloves, and you know you're not going to fight again, you know, it's just finding something else to fill that big void. And, you know, I count myself lucky because I moved on in the, been on the gym and, and boxing and stuff. But, you know, I did have dark days where maybe it wasn't working for me. I wasn't finding the place. And also, you know, you're worrying about financially. What are you going to do for the rest of your life? Hmm. Uh, at the same time, you might you might have be one of the lucky ones who came away with a feeling of really extracting a lot a lot from your career. You You, you had great longevity. You box until I think thirty-eight years of age, uh, and a lot, a lot of other people get, you know, get hampered by injuries before that. Do you still feel that you yeah. did as much as you could have done, or was there a little bit more I, that you could have given? Uh, you know, I feel I had one or two more fights. Emma, you know, I had a contract with a German contract for a couple, two more fights and three more fights, and I didn't go through with it. I'm sorry, now I never. I wish I had went back in the ring within six months of my last fight and and, and fought again, but. That's maybe just the kind of nostalgia part of me wanting to kind of move on. But it's just because when I had about two years down, I went, oh, I'd love to fight again. But by that stage, I was ring for two years at my age. It was too long. And, you know, finally, you know, you just couldn't get back in the, in the, in the ship again for, for, the, for the fight. But it is a lot coming to terms with knowing that you're never going to put the, the gloves on again. Um, I still love training. I train as much as I can. 
Um, but you just nothing like training for a fight and, and that kind of whole thing that goes with it. Mm. Now, Brian, in, in 42 pro fights, you uh, you fought all, you fought all over the place. You fought uh, even in in Belfast. You fought eight times. You fought as a pro four times in Dublin. But towards the end of your career, you gained a reputation as a road warrior. And did yeah. you feel it was merited? Did you feel it was justified? Yeah, 100%. I had to go everywhere. I didn't feel, I, even when I fought in Belfast, I never thought, I was never a home fighter. I always fought. It was always, the cards were always stacked in the other fighters' corners. Every advantage, I was always in the other corner. You know, even when I fought at home, we never thought that I had the I had, we had the advantage. You know, we are never given any special treatment, anything like that there. It was the same when I went away. You know, you're always, the same old tricks that do you in, in boxing, you know, hotel far away, bringing you late to the weigh-ins. You know, just making life difficult difficult for you. Um, so it, it was tough, but thankfully I had a long amateur career as well, and I got to Olympic Games and all. And to be honest with you, that kind of was the platform that got me through it as a professional as well. All the stuff I learned, all the wee tricks learning when you're traveling and you're in, in camp when you're um, an amateur and you have to train and fight as well. All, the, all those type of things, those experiences stood by me when I was on the road as a, as a pro, you know, like going out, getting your own food, going and searching places to buy your own food. Little things you take for granted, you know, and certain things you like, certain things not going to make you sick when you're when you're traveling. Things you can eat that are close to home. You know, going to different countries and they're eating all this different food. You need food. You need food that's not going to make you sick and it's going to be a good for you to train and stuff. Mm. Now you you probably wouldn't be getting sick by the uh, fair on offer in your first major away day, uh, which was probably. By my estimation, against Neil Linford in 2001, you fought him in Peterborough. He's from Leicester, an hour away. Yes. Uh, you're 11 and 0. He's 11 and 2. So obviously, you're probably favoured to win. You've got the you've got the better record. Yes. But it, it's a tough fight, and if you if you lose, you're back to you're back to drawing board, and he he moves on. So what do you recall from that one? Yeah, that that that's all I remember. That fight well. I, I think I broke my hand in the third round or something like that, or broke, hurt it bad. But it was like a right hand out, but I still kind of meant so much to me. I still smacked the weight of the body in my right hand as much as I could. But um, yeah, fights they got there when they're when they're making making break. You know, there's a lot a lot more on the line. And I always made <coughs> boxing as a game of snakes and ladders. You know, I won that fight. I moved on up the ladder a lot quicker. Um, you lose the fight, you're back to score one again. And and you know, this is a hard thing about boxing. It's not like a Premiership. I've always said where you win a match, you can you can. You know, make it better the week after. You know, you win a week, but in boxing, you have months. You could be on the sideline for six months. You know, from going to getting paid a hundred grand a fight to coming down to getting paid five grand a fight. You know, this is the difference. With one oh, I heard that Brian McGee won't get out of bed for five thousand. Well, that used to be true. It's not true anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got out of bed for five pound now. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. I, um, possibly things might have gone differently in your career had you beaten uh, Robin Reed in, in Kings Hall in 2004. It was a yeah, you know yeah. big home crowd and but you got dropped a couple of times and you lost a unanimous decision. What, what yeah. about that one? That fight, I didn't want that fight so soon. I was in Florida when the fight was made, and when I, I was on holidays, only only just fought. I think I fought Sharifi in the Kings Hall, and I went away to Florida Disneyland for for a week. And when I came back, the fight was made already. I didn't want it to make so quick. And I think I had only seven weeks to prepare, but I put on so much weight. I just didn't. I didn't make the weight well for that fight. Like from the fourth round, I was just. I was. I was drained. You know, when I got back, I kind of trained my really well, and then the weight making the weight just just hit me early. And I learned that fight. That was one of the big mistakes I made. Or that. Or sorry, I learned in my career about making weight as well. Where even if you look at my body, 
and performances later on in my, later on in my career, even though it was bigger and stronger and heavier and carrying more muscle, you know, my endurance was better, my punch resistance was better. So it was all about that wee bit of learning curve and smartness. And back then, you know, that's, I don't know how many years ago that is now, but, you know, nowadays, every every boxer more or less have somebody looking after nutrition. You can just go and get their meals and all made for you now. You know, it's a, it's a lot easier. There's a lot of help out there. It's just going and doing it and getting that help. So it is where back then, you know, we were kind of finding out everything for, for ourselves and, and looking for help. But um, that was... That was one of the things about that fight. Now, Robin Lee was a great, great fighter. It was a close, I, I, you know, I thought maybe I should have got it. Being the home fighter and being the champion, I thought I should have got it by a point. It was a split decision. You know, when he hit me below the belt in the first round, he gave me a public warning. There was no way. Even Robin was a good friend of mine and a lovely, lovely guy. Uh, and he admits that himself. Like, you know, it shouldn't have been a public warning. But, um, you know, fights that got there maybe should have happened again. Mm. Should have another one. Yeah, and I mentioned um, I mentioned a fighter where away like Linford, he's an hour from home, but that's that's uh, pales into insignificance in your next major away date against Vitaly Tipko. He, now he's a Ukrainian, but he's fighting out of Germany. He's promoted in Germany, and uh, you get a European title shot against him. Uh, and another fight I thought I should have won. Good outdoor. That's what I'm saying. They put us in a hotel miles away outside, well, outside Nuremberg. We had to walk into Nuremberg to get our food and stuff like this here and the, and the way in. Um, but it's like anything too. I was used to it. it didn't, I didn't fizz things. They got there. I don't let them, let, them, let them affect me mentally. I just get on with it. You know, and that's one thing you have to do as a fighter. Just be ready for anything. Get on with it. It doesn't matter what goes on between now and that first bell ringing, you just want to do everything you can to make sure you're in the best shape getting in through the ropes. Yeah. But um, Vitaly Stilko himself, a very underrated fighter. He was a one hard man. Like I mean, as a professional, I thought he beat Jeff Racy. Um, he got stopped with a bad cut. But um, even that European fight as well, the, the, the robbed me at the season. I should have been European champion then, which could have catapulted my career onwards for that fight. Um, you know, because we're talking now, we go into preparation for that fight. Like, I had, had one week sparring with uh, a cruiserweight, Rob. Uh, he actually fought Darren Corbett, Rob something. can't remember his second name. But he came over to spar me. We couldn't get a super middleweight uh, sparring partner. So that was the thing, living here as well. There wasn't many sparring partners. We had to bring everybody yeah. in. And if there's nobody available, you were kind of stuck. So, so some of my biggest fights in my career, I, I, I trained hard, done as much as I could training. But like I said, if you want a quality sparring, that was the thing that wasn't available, so you just had to make do and get on with things. So that's where you had to be mentally, mentally strong and have the mind mm-hmm. of a champion that gets through it. And that, that fight, the points are so close. You know, it's a split decision. He wins by a point on one card. You win by a point on another card. Yeah. And I think the other card has him too clear. Do, does a does a crowd make any difference? Um, is that your is that was it was a, a pro Zipko crowd in Germany or how did definitely, it affect did it affect fight? Definitely was. I love the Germans, and you already got it in the back of your mind. Going out into Germany, you have to win by unanimous decision, big time or mm. knockout to get a split decision kind of thing. You have to. That was a that was a kind of running joke where you know the win in Germany by split decision, you have to knock them out. <laughs> yeah, but, and, yeah, of course, yeah. And that was and that was kind of it. You know, it was a lot of a lot of money on the line. But it's like I think once you once you get beat, they do the decision, and then away you go, and it's kind of forgotten about. Where um, you know, we push for. A rematch and stuff like that there, but in Germany, the, the if it's anywhere close, they don't, they don't have it. So that was another time across the in my career where I had to make another comeback. You know, very, very tough. And it was a tough fight, and I put everything in that fight as well. Um, but, you know, this was a thing in my mind. I knew, talk about longevity there, always knew I wasn't going to give up. I gave myself the 38, 
36, 38 at the Monoscop Boxing Bay. So whatever I could accomplish in that years, that's what I wanted to do. And then something had happened to me. You know, so always in my mind, I wanted to try to achieve as much as I could in the time I was given the box. Yeah, uh, we we move on to 2006. You fight a uh, you fight another big na- a big name of the era, Carl Froch over in a uh, is your call you fought for your Frotch? call yeah your call yeah. yeah um an Englishman in England and uh, a br- a brilliant fight. The crowd has gone wild. Yeah. It's something something we don't really have at the minute. Crowds at boxing matches because of this pandemic. Yeah, um, we don't we don't know when they're going to return. Yeah, it was. It was as amazing. I, I was going to say, so you know, heck, I'm complaining about a lot of things. I, I said, before that fight as well, I said, make the fight anywhere with Carl Frotch. We'll go to Nottingham to fight. I hit your call fighting it. I fought in it as, as a kid. I won the Golden Gloves. And a couple of times in the summertime, it gets so hot in there. It is crazy, crazy heat. But um, I wasn't fight, first on fighting in your call, especially somebody like Carl Frotch. You know, that I would have fought him any, anywhere else. But, um, that was a brilliant fight, and I thought, thought it was unlucky. I always knew it was going to be a tough, tough fight. Carl was getting into his prime then, into his peak. Um, and, you know, I, I thought it was just ahead, ahead of the fight that come the 11th round, and he caught me with that trademark uppercut, which mm. he caught me in the first round he recovered from. But by the end, I was a bit drained in the fight, and I just couldn't uh, recover from it. The referee kind of stopped the fight. I thought it was kind of okay, but... um. You know, safety comes first, and you kind of, you know, the boxer always wants to fight on. But um, that was another crossroads in my career. If I'd have won that fight, you let, you know, you you always kind of would think, you know, Carfrat's done amazing. You can not can't take it away anything from him. He, for me, he's one of the best super middleweights out there. So durable. So um, you know, he, he he always when the fights he, he always turned it around. I'm just a prime example. When maybe the chips were down, you looked like it was on the line. He turned the fight around. He done, he done the same against Taylor. He's done it so many times in, in his career. You know, that's what makes him who he is. Yeah, and, and uh, you're trying to bounce back then from the third defeat of your career, and you, yeah. you do. You win a British title, and... Um, if you if you can't tell already, I'm I'm going through, I'm going through some of some of the notable away fights yeah, from your career. So I'll, I'll get to number four, and this means we're at the halfway point. Uh, after a year off, you're British you're British champion 2008. Take a year off, and you come back in January 2010 with a fight against Mads Larsen in Aarhus in Denmark. Yeah. Now, I didn't re- I didn't realize until watching that show on BBC this week that in the weeks before that it had been a really difficult time for you, you know, maybe Christmas uh, and bills to pay. Even before, even it goes back even before that, after the British title fight, a week before the British title fight, I had hurt my back, but now it didn't bother me during the fight. I'm together. I didn't know how bad it was, but it was only after the fight. I had the fight stuff, and after the fight, I thought I'd done a prolapse disc so hard, and it was just agony. It was giving me sciatica down my leg, but I was due to fight defend the British title in Liverpool on a David Haybill. I think I was meant to fight a guy called Quigley. It was even Quigley yeah. and or something like that. I was one of them And I, I was starting back training for the fight as well. But the, the sciatica just got worse and worse and worse. And I couldn't train anymore. So they gave me a decision either to give me step aside money. And because the bill was getting close to the bill, well, could that bill and Liverpool go on if I give the title up and I fight the winner? So obviously I said, hold on, I'm getting, paid here. I'm getting paid for not fighting. I couldn't believe it at the time. So I said, yeah. yes, happy days. Plus, I'll get the fight for a title again for more money. And I was going, I thought that was a brilliant deal for me anyway. And then the next thing, got rid of the sciatic. I found out what it was. It was actually, I ripped, I ripped the performance muscle. So then I kind of my butt. And what I called, I got that sorted out. Got back into training again. The next thing I'm reading the paper, quickly due to fight Dodson in Liverpool. So I stood on the Pat McGee, my manager, going, Pat, what the hell? The British Boxing Board promised I was fighting the winner. What's going on here? Oh, I don't know, I don't know. So that was that was part of the reason why I was out of the ring so long that time. 
when we just couldn't get fights either. You know, when you're when you're that's a hard thing. When you're a decent fighter too, and you're not on the downward slope, sometimes it's hard to get matches as well. Minimal, meaningful fights anyway. And mm. then that's when it got so hard for me financially. I had no money coming in for all that time. I was about to lose my house. Two, I was more or less. I think we had enough for two, um, two more mortgage payments in the bank. I went to the bank to ask for a land of ten thousand pound. They wouldn't give me it because all I had coming in was I think it was two hundred fifty pound a month in the black coming in to stop me from going under. But when the, when then mortgage payments came out, we would have went under. And then I got a I got a phone call that afternoon. I come home from the bank, and I was actually just after telling my partner in the in the bedroom, listen, this is what's happening. Morgan's Poway Poway phoned me on the phone saying, do you want to fight Mads Larson? And you couldn't you couldn't make it up. It was it was amazing, and that and that kind of changed my whole career again. Where I was so determined to win that fight. That's why I think that fight was my best performance because I was just so hungry for it and it meant so much. There was no there was no choice to leave it close or not to, or to lose. It was something I had to win or I was finished. Yeah. And um, what do you remember about that trip to Denmark? Obviously, uh, you followed in the footsteps of another Irish fighter and Charlie Nash 30 years previously, 40 years ago now, yeah. who went across to Denmark and beat the great Scotsman Ken Buchanan to win the European title. So you're heading across to Denmark. What... It was a place you were to get to know really well, a, a country you were to get to know really well. But what was your first impressions of it, and were you treated well over there? Oh, I was treated brilliant. I was over previous to see as how I knew Morgan's Poway because I was Michael McKill's sparring partner for fighting Calzaghi. I was over and sparred uh, Kessler for three weeks, um, so that's how I got to know Morgan's Poway. But the country itself, they took really well to me, so they did um, right away. Right away, um, I was, we were treated really, really nice. It was a great experience, and I got, the, and I think that's why. I, I've got such a good relationship with Denmark and with the Danish people from that fight, and then moving on to fight fighting there again two more times. But um, the fight itself, we were up against it. I think I was one to twenty to win, so a lot of my friends won a lot of money after that fight. So mm. they did, you know, just putting a few pound on was one to twenty, um, or twenty to one or something it was to win some whatever the way the odds were. But one pound gets you twenty pound back. So I made I made a few friends, a lot of people, a lot of money mm. after that fight. And you had a new coach, and did you have a new attitude, a new style? Because it did kick off a really 100%. interesting portion of your career, an interesting second half. Yeah, I did. 100% I had. Um, I was already working with a bit of a conditioner, Alex Doherty, who was always in my corner after that third. And when I met Bernardo Chaka as well, it just revitalized me a lot. And it was also the position I was in financially and personally that I had to change everything around, just change everything around. So... You know, it was everything combined that turned turned my kind of my career around, and then that's when I started, obviously, you know, taking care of myself more, watching, making sure I was stronger, getting in the ring, and trying to trying to more or less read books and and trying to see how why why was I after round four like you know flat in energy after so much training training so hard that um I wasn't performing like like I did, and you can see from then my performances got better and better. Mm. Did you figure it out? What did you do differently after round four? Yeah, yeah, just it's all, it's all preparation. Like, so it is in your training and, and, and fighting and stuff like that. There. So it was a lot down to, to kind of changing that up a wee bit and, and mm. watching the weight, bring the weight down from further out. Down, you know, because I remember even when I first turned pro, I was thinking I was going to move down to let the middleweight just, but I was just too big. Then as I got older and you train harder, you put on a bit more muscle. After In between fights, I'd been walking around about 13 stone. And then towards you know that European title fight and say the likes of um, butane stuff, I'd been walking around about 14, 14 four. So like it was it was two stone four pound had to come off to get down to the weight, which was a lot. But that was mm. just going up naturally with age. 
and getting a bit bigger. But, you know, I was making the weight better then than I was when I was only walking around at 13 stone. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And uh, Boutet, who you mentioned there, he's the next stop on this little tour where you, uh, you arrive in Montreal, the Bell Centre, uh, for a major fight. Uh, after the Super si- uh, after the uh, the Larson fight, the kind of Super Six kicked off. So yeah. the big names at 168, your division, all went into this tournament. They were closed off as opponents. So you yeah. have to look around. And the big the biggest name who didn't enter the Super Six is Lucien Boutet. Now he's yeah. looking for opponents. Yeah. And that means uh, an opportunity at a a world title for you and uh, a payday as well, a, yeah. a major payday, yeah. and a fight—a fight that you thought you could win as well. Oh, de- definitely. Um, I was actually in for Super Six. It was between myself and Tibor, the last two wild cards to get in, and they picked an American to get into that. So I think that's how they maybe the, the my name was in the hat for the fight Butte as well, which, which you know, no matter what, it worked out well. Um, Butte was a classy, classy boxer. He was on a, he was on, he was on super high. I think if I had it with him with the same attitude and the same um, aggression that I did against Larson, I'd, I'd have had a better outcome in that in that fight. But um, it's like anything too; you can't regret. You, you do your best, but just look it back because I think that's what Frats did. Frats learned from that fight about just going for Butte. I think Butte's confidence got too big. I mean, and when I was fighting Butte in Canada, he was treated like a god. I mean, you have mm-hmm. you have no idea. Like you know, he was like a football star. You know such an entourage and and you know it was a fabulous experience you know you're we're, we're in cafes eating our lunch and the menu is a uh, Brian McGee burger the Lucien Butte <laughs> dessert you know they had the menus named after for the for fight week it was, yeah. it was brilliant you know even after the fight you're walking down and people are shouting over at your name and all do you know you felt like a superstar it was it was a great experience and, and Montreal was it was a nice country I was there before for the world championships so I was, but um, that time was fantastic, and it was during St. Patrick's Day too. So it was yeah, a time yeah. to be Irish. 
Uh, yeah, and, so, and sometimes a crowd can win a fight for you because on the very same night that you fought Butte, Willie Casey fought uh, Guillermo Rigondeau in City West, and I was at that one, and Willie had the whole crowd, but it wasn't enough, and he lost in the first round. Butte yeah. had a, cra- a big, big crowd behind him that night at the Bell Centre, uh, and you were, the en- you were the enemy that night. Yeah, 20,000 people. My friend, John Marsden, was sitting ringside, and he was talking to... Uh, the announcer and he goes, he said, I said, what do you think of the fight? Jimmy, what's called Jimmy's second name? He was asking him anyway, what, uh, who, what do you think of the fight? What do you think? He goes, look around here, look at how many people in here support Butte, look at the jobs, look at everything else. He goes, McGee, you'll have to knock him out to win in here. You know, and, and, and it's true, he was such a superstar. That whole, you know, he generated so much money in Montreal through boxing, like he had some massive defences. He just signed a big deal for seven million when I, when I, when I was fighting him. Um, but you know, it's like anything boxing. It's it's what you put in. It, it, the prize is there for you. Um, it just wasn't it just wasn't the be. It was a bit too classy on the night for me. Yeah, I remember getting excited when one particular shot that you landed landed yeah. really flushing him in the first half of the fight and yeah, thinking, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that following summer, 2011, uh, it's Brian McGee against Jamie Barboza for the interim WBA title in San Jose, Costa Rica. Another away day. Uh, and this time, it's a much different atmosphere. Daytime fight. The president is there in the front row alongside Don King. I think the ring collapses in the third. Sounds calamitous and crazy and probably a lot of fun of a week as well. It was. It was a, that was a crazy experience. I think I was the only one that accepted the fight. But it was a big opportunity to fight for the WBA title again. Coming out of nowhere, um, I think they asked me to ask Kessler something he wanted. He didn't want to do the traveling. I was definitely up for the traveling. Um, we had our training camp in Panama. My trainer, Bernardo Chaka, was from Panama. So at the Panama, um, such a tough, tough experience that, that fight was. Um, on paper, I would have thought I, I was definitely probably favoured for it. So it was, mm-hmm. I was really up for the fight. But the whole travelling and the, the training in the heat, like an Irish man out there talking about, the, the, one of the gyms I trained in was called the Devil's Cauldron. It was on top of a three-story building just covered with tin and the heat after three rounds, you're just completely drained. Um, and even when it, so when I got to Costa Rica, I actually thought Costa Rica was cooler compared to Panama. Mm. But during the fight, when you were in the fight, the arena itself got so hot. Um, I remember even when the ropes broke, having the standing, it was like 10 minute break. The sweat was still dripping out of me. After that fight, it started the middle, towards the end of the fight, you really started to feel weight drained and everything was an effort. When there's so much heat, you have to have really dig deep. But walking back from the ring, the boots were squelching with so much, they were so waterlogged and um, feeling a bit sick. But obviously the feeling of having just won the title and really revitalizing my career again was just, it was just amazing. It just made it all worthwhile. So it did. Yeah, um, but meanwhile, one of the pitfalls of being an away fight or being a long way from home is uh, there's a lot of there's news developing on a personal level at home, isn't there? There was very, very big news. Yes, just had a baby <laughs> girl. So hard, so long. That was going in the background. But that's one of the things I say about being a fighter, been mentally strong and, you know, Probably it's not something you have to teach. It's something you have to practice. You have to practice being mentally strong throughout your career to overcome these things. And one of the things was blocking things, things like that out. Because sometimes emotional things, like even before the fight, uh, as long as everything was okay, um, my partner Catherine she wouldn't have sent me really. It sent to be photograph and stuff like that there, but didn't talk too much about the kids because sometimes they can just emotions can overboard and upset you and throw you off your track of your mind. What do you need to do? So I was just trying to stay focused, but um, it was it was so weird knowing you had a baby girl there at home waiting on you to, to come back just just born. 
you know, it was a, it was even more to fight for, and, and it was exciting even to get home as well. Couldn't wait. To, it was a long journey home, waiting to get home to see, yeah. to see the movie girl. So, did you find out uh, a day or two? What what day was your daughter born on? The day of the fight, a day before? I, I How close was it? Before, I think it was the day before. Yeah. So it was okay. the day before. So we just knew that the day before. Um, I think Catherine might have been talking to my manager, Pat McGee, and. They'd probably said not to no not to make too much of a big deal out of it kind of thing. Yeah. Obviously, yeah, it was celebrating. It was really good news, but we're still focused on the on the fight and what happened. So I think by the time by the time I got home, she was five days old. By the time right, I okay, home, yeah. I got home, she was five days old when I first met her. It was very strange. And even after for a while, I thought, God, she doesn't really like me. I don't know. She, you know, we always talk about bonding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She doesn't really know me as her daddy because I didn't see her when she was first born. You know, everybody else has held her before me. <laughs> I was like the last person to get a to get a cuddle. But it was uh, but she's like one of my favorite snacks, which is you're probably Taps off straight away, you know, do that skin to skin bonding. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I'd imagine had had she not been born. Just before the fight, you might have brought a bit of anxiety into the into the bout, possibly about just w- worrying what's going on at home. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, you don't know what's going home, and you know, obviously, my partner shot. I knew she, I knew she had a good support team with her sister. We kind of already really planned everything, so she knew, you know, we already had a daughter before. So, but she was going to a different hospital and all the time. She had this thing where she had to get a special injection for her blood or something. So there might have been some complications. Um, on this this pregnancy, but um, her sister and all was there for her, and I kind of knew it would be okay. So we're we're trying not to think about it and just have yeah. everything planned, her bag, where she's going to, what she's going to do, and hoping that there was going to be nothing, no other complications with the with it. But you know, as I say, it's just a matter of trying to stay focused. And I always practice kind of if you come into fight camp, even because a lot of my fights were maybe had to train at home, I yeah, don't travel, but at home I always took myself out of the normal life. Like, I, I didn't go out, I didn't go to the cinema, I didn't go for meals while I was training. I tried to put myself into a training camp for, say, when I first turned pro, I was doing eight weeks, and then I, I turned to, like, a three-month camp. By the time you go back into training, where I was just been dedicated to training for this fight, so just focusing on the fight. Wouldn't go to family occasions, wouldn't go to the cinema, wouldn't go to, um, you know, out for meals and stuff like that. Or, you know, maybe maybe went to the odd cinema just to break, break things up, mm. but... Most of the time, especially when you're making weight, you kind of have to train. You're a bit tired. The last thing you want to do is go out and run around. You're training the next day. So, like, I, I kind of would have would have tried to put this, make a training camp for myself where, obviously, knife fighters have, have tons of training camps, which are brilliant for themselves. Back then, we hadn't got the opportunity, so I had to kind of make a training camp myself just for me and separate yeah. family from boxing. Yeah, and... Um... Obviously, after your escapades in Costa Rica, you weren't banned from fighting away anymore because the following year again, you had another training camp and you ended up back in Denmark to fight uh, Rudy Marcusen. Yeah. Uh, this time for the interim WBA, or this time to defend your interim uh, WBA title. Yeah. Uh, a big, big puncher, Marcusen. Were you massive, fancy to win it? Do you, do you recall? What do you recall going into the fight? Yeah, massive, massive puncher. The big disappointment for that fight was that should have been me winning the winning the winning the WBA outright. The WBA we're meant to make me the full champion after Costa Rica and for that fight. But there was something happened obviously with the first bit not the first bit sanction fees. And it didn't make me the W the full WBA champion at the time because I think the the super champion was Ward. More and Andre Ward, was, yeah. He was inactive at the time as well. So they needed a champion and they were to make me the full champion. And then that would have been my first defense. And obviously it would have been a massive night for me, more so than what it was winning making having them a first defense as a mm. win in Denmark. So it was disappointing to get into the fight that that didn't happen for me, even though I, even though I won and it was a 
it was a brilliant body shot. I mean, if I was ever to fire a body shot, I couldn't have fired one more perfect than that there. Just dipped from the toe, felt the whole body weight behind it. It looked like nothing on TV, as in you hit him easy, but feeling that punch, I felt my punch, I felt my fist dig right into his ribs, sink right in. So it was a piece of a punch. But um, uh, uh, you know, when, that's one thing about it being mentally strong as well. When you have the press, because Marcus was such a big digger, constantly I've been bombarded with about his punching power, about this, and then to go back against Robin Reed, about how he floored me four times in the fight, and you know, and it, it, it's the experience of blocking these things out of your mind, because sometimes your mind, if you think it a lot, enough, it can become reality in your head, so you got to block these things out, so we're mentally strong, and my mantra was in, lead, lead with the mind, and the body will follow, you know, and that's one of the things that got me through, got me through that fight. Yeah, and I think as well, like you were saying, possibly some of the lessons you learned about boxing on the road as well, you did have an ability at this stage to go for the kill. You showed it against Larson, and now you showed it against Mark Cousin as well. Yeah. And it did, uh, I can assure you, it did look like a sore punch on TV. It didn't look like you put, it, did, it didn't look like you put your full 100% into it, just from my, just from looking at it, but it looked so... No, you didn't wind it up or you didn't telegraph it, but you kind of dipped in underneath. You found a sweet spot and you yeah. kind of just punched right through it yeah. and right in the ribs. And he was and down. Was he... I just pushed from the toe, even my toe. I was pushing my foot, pushing my toe off the ground, the fist into his, into his body. It was a great shot. Yeah. So um, and we'll, we'll move on now to the last. I picked out eight away days. So we've uh, we've gone through them. We've gone through seven. And then the last one, back again to Denmark, Bronby. Oh, no, Bro- so pardon me. Bronby was Marcusen. Marcusen, uh, Herning against uh, Mikael Kessler, a legend yeah. of super middleweight boxing, former yeah. sparring partner of yourself, yeah. uh, all-around nice guy, and uh, your last opponent, as it turned out. My last opponent, yeah, I always knew he was going to be up, up against it. Um, I was actually due to fight, uh, I think it was Durrell or somebody in Texas, on a big bill, and Pat McGee and my team were already talking to um, TMT, money team, Mayweather and stuff, but they ended up, while we were doing the discussions, and about to sign the deal, Mayweather came out of jail or something like that there, and him and 50 Cent had fallen out. So the whole fight was just, and the deal was taken away. So not that it was the second option, but the opportunity then came to fight Kessler and defend against Kessler. So um, with the money they were offering, it was hard to turn down a big fight, you know, look for somebody else or wait. I think the jail pay was going to be put back in a lot, a lot, a lot of months. But as the age was creeping up on me as well, I was conscious about how long, how many more big opportunities am I, am I going to get? You know, I already got fighting for the ABF, I've, I've, I've lots of opportunities. How many more can one fighter get? If you know what I mean, one more loss, and I might get the opportunity. So I was wanting to try to, in the attitude of trying to make as much money as I could, and as a short career I had left. So I knew, I knew in my heart and in my head, I only had one or two fights left in me. You know, I was getting 39, I was fighting the best, the best there was. So it was just a matter of staying there. But that opportunity to catch there came around with the big money and he was one of the best so I, I took it so did. And uh yeah and what what were your tactics? Like you'd you obviously had success just a couple of couple of months previously against Marcus and stopped yeah. him in Denmark. Uh Kessler had Kessler was going up in age as well and there was an opportunity there. You were I remember you were a betting underdog like but yeah. you had been through that before. You were obviously the away fighter at the home of a great fighter. Yeah. You'd been through all that before. So you were uniquely experienced to take on this challenge yeah no I was definitely keen I was definitely keen within myself I was like no matter what where you are no matter how much of an underdog you are it's important to believe in yourself no matter if anybody else doesn't believe you you got to believe you can do the impossible and believe in yourself and I've always did that throughout my career no matter what I might not shout about it I might not go and you know share it out and, and 
to run fighters down. But deep inside, I've always thought it. You've got to think that about yourself. And even against Kessler, I knew, even before even when I sparred him, I wouldn't have counted probably back then. But in that piece of time, when I was a sparring partner tonight, I knew it was a different fighter. And I knew I had a chance. I was hitting harder. I was faster. I was more durable. Everything, just everything all around was was better. And why are Kessler might have been the same fighter? He, I was, I just put into my head that he wasn't. He was on the downwards on the downwards spiral. Um, because I was thinking he, he was using this as his last fight, like a swan song, one last mm. chance for him too. So we're kind of similar crossroads, and I did give myself a chance. Um, I just never, I never expected the fight to end the way it did. You know, it was usually me stopping people with body shots. And then to finally get caught. My last two big fights, more or less with Butte and Kessler, were getting better meal medicine where I was yeah. with body shots. Yeah, you gave out plenty. Um, uh, following the following the fight, um, there was talk about uh, about maybe against uh, an upcoming British supermate, middle, middleweight George Groves, who ended up fighting Carl Froch. And yeah. you didn't fight again, but in July, a couple of months later, it was announced that you'd served a backdated. A suspension for a doping violation. Yeah. Which can you tell us about what happened there. Yeah, that was one of the biggest. That was one of the hardest times in my life. That kind of one. That kind of was one of the reasons. Not that I quit boxing, but I kind of went. It, it took a lot out of me to get over it. When you imagine your career, all of a sudden, been told you were placed a positive. When you and you have absolutely have no idea what they're talking what they're talking about. You know, we just got a phone call from the UK anti doping. Like I've been tested probably about fifty times throughout my career. As an amateur and professional, like every word, every title fight you go, you get tested as well. So, and I hadn't done anything different than I did in all those other fights, leading up to anything, something much anything. Um, and we get a phone call about from the UK anti doping. Um, listen, you've tested positive. We didn't know what our next step is, so we were on the phone to Joe Dunbar, who he advises, listen, the best thing to do, you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent. You know, there's no, there's no fine line. So we had to go and get everything, all my supplements tested. That I had taken up leading that fight, so it cost a lot. I think it was like over a thousand pounds per supplement to get tested. So we had to send them all off, get tested, and um, ended up. I found out that it was a pre-workout drink, um, and it was set. It was a normal drink to take, an energy drink for before training. But what happened was it was contaminated within the factory. They found traces of contamination in the in the batch. So we had to go and buy more and send it to UK. I think open. They tested again. They tested again, and they investigated and found out that the the batch was contaminated with little bits. Not nothing that would enhance your performance, but it shows up on a test. So it does. So I think I was the first fighter. So we got the whole thing overturned. So I think I was the first. I think I've been the first fighter, maybe one of the first athletes to get it completely overturned. You know, and prove yourself to be to be innocent. Um, we tried to take. The company making the drink, the court, along with I think it was a, I think it was maybe a footballer that tested positive too. We tried to bring them, take them to the court as well, but it was just a, such a long drawn out thing that whenever we couldn't get anywhere, even the company itself, the company had closed down and it restarted again. So it opens up a can of worms of how these companies can put these drinks in and not prove. Like on the drink I took was drug free, DMA tested, Olympic. It had the stamp for Olympic athletes to take. Mm. And yet, it made me test positive. So, that whole thing, with, with no support group and all, it, it really kind of, when it was all over, I felt drained from it all, and I felt kind of let down as well. You know what I mean? Because also, a bit by the press, where they were very quick, whenever I tested positive, to jump on and go, oh, McGee tested positive, blah, blah. But yet, when I was 
when I when I tested when I was able to prove my innocence and and to help to go after the company who made this drink, to kind of uh, prove where, where it was and also help obviously get something back because they're kind of wreck, we're almost wrecking my history of boxing. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean, we tried to get them, but the, the, the press should have been on helping me do that. You know what I mean? Where I thought they didn't. They were very quick. They liked the story that I was maybe guilty, but didn't like the story when you were innocent. And I thought that that's not really right. And that kind of put me off a bit. Yeah. Uh, did Did you feel that some relationships, like with media or whatever, did break down because of that? Or yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes is... even afterwards, the boxing night where I've got my own gym and stuff like that. There, you know, I went out of the way so many times to do interviews and and other people. Yet now, when you need somebody to maybe do a wee story on your gym or something like that, there, help you get your business off the ground. They were they weren't really there to be seen to help. Neither some was good help on the boxing. Um, uh, community in a whole are, pre- are pretty good but you know I think sometimes this country too the, you know they love a loser and they don't really, they should love a winner more as well somebody who's trying to push themselves make them better themselves and yeah. you know I, I always found this like as well that what I was doing it could have been a good roadmap for fighters coming through because even when I was fighting there wasn't really anybody to follow to try to see right what do you do after boxing what do you you know because Boxing is hard to make it. It's hard to get something out of boxing. And I know so many boxers who were brilliant boxers look like they made something of themselves, but then later on in life they have nothing to show for it. So, you know, I think there's some, there's a, there is stuff some there where boxers need help with some guidance to see. Listen, there's lots of opportunities after boxing in your career as well. Even if you don't make it to the top, if you don't make millions, you can still make something of yourself after boxing and, and do things. It is hard work. As I said before, boxing turns out to be the easy side of it, where, where real life is quite tough. But, you know, you can make a good life for yourself after boxing, even if you haven't made it to the, the very, very top and got the riches that come with it. Brian, I was going to ask you, uh, I saw re- recently because nobody's had uh, anything to do during lockdown, well, before live sport came back, there was a lot of uh, articles looking back, making lists, the best boxers to have come from Ireland and stuff yes. like that, or the best uh, the best to have come from Northern Ireland. An interesting one was Carl Frampton did a... To the list of the top ten boxers to come out of Ireland in the last thirty years. Yes. And uh, I'm just looking for it now, which I seem to have lost. But I know where I know where you were in the positions. Number five. Yes. I I was shocked. I was shocked about. I mean, there's so much talent. There's so many. Yes, so many peers in boxing. You know, um, that I was chuffed to be in the in the, in the top ten list of, of any of any list. It, it's it's amazing. Um, I was very chuffed about. You know, I, I think they had Steve Collins above me, didn't they, as well? Steve he Collins, does. Steve he, Collins he, was a hero, man. You I've, see? Got the, I've got the list here. It's, it's Wayne McCullough, Steve Collins, Dave Boy McCauley, Andy Lee, and Brian McGee, then number five. After you, it's Ryan Burnett, TJ Doheny, Matthew Macklin, Bernard Dunn, and Ray Close. So a number of world and European champions listed. Right, okay. Yeah. It's very hard to differentiate them. I suppose everybody, Carl maybe would have a better idea of my career because he was up-and-coming fighters like myself and Steve Collins. I know Steve Collins' career the whole way through from when he was training in East Woods gym and been a nobody to become a world champion. So I know his history and stuff because I followed him then and he was a hero of mine where I put Steve Collins in front of me because obviously I see him as, as my peer and some of my inspiration mm. to, to come do what I did. So I do. So it's hard that way and card probably would be the same with me. But it is so much talent, so much talent there. But um, I, I feel... Um, Blessed to be in that list and be the number the number you give me. Carl and I would be in my top five 
all all boxers and if for any he'd probably be the most successful boxer out of Ireland. Yeah. And and because because of your longevity, you you go between a couple of different eras. I want to ask you about the best super middleweight of your era, and I guess you could go from Andre Ward, Mikael Kessler, maybe Joe Kazagi is in your era and the previous yeah. one, George Groves, James DeGale, or the Durrells or whatever. Yeah. Who, who who catches your eye or who stands out as the top dog? You have to say Cal, Kawasaki. Kawasaki would be one of the best. To my favorite Kawasaki. That's one of the disappointment things that never happened. I was meant to fight him. Um, I think boxers make styles, and when he fought Jeff Lacey, I was 100% certain that performance, it wasn't a shock for me, the performance against Jeff Lacey, because I beat Jeff Lacey in America over five rounds, and I, I boxed the head off him, and I knew Kawasaki would do the same, so I think boxers make styles, so I think, you know, there's certain fighters are always going to give you a hard night's work, but there's other fighters who are maybe better that you might have, you think you've, you fancy yourself against. Mm. And that time I fought Kawasaki, I did fancy myself against it because I knew I had a bit of speed and a bit of boxing ability. And that's what Kawasaki found hard. Do you know, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah. But he would be definitely in the top, top. Um, Steve Collins, I loved because one, he was Irish and one, the way he came the way back. I always liked Eubank as a showman. You know, um, the second generation, like with George Groves and the Gale and all, that's a that's a that's a, a generation. I wish I had been in in the prime instead of fighting the Kawasaki's, the Card Fratches, the Kesslers. I wish I had been in the other era. I'd have been. I'd have, I think I'd have probably beat beat most of them. Ones. Yeah, yeah. And uh, th- obviously, we never really saw the great Americans against the great kind of British and Irish super middleweights. But James Tony, Roy Jones Jr. Do you think they would have had it? Do, do you think they would have played with the guys from this side of the Atlantic, or do you think uh, they would have had a harder night than they would have emphasized? Um, I think it would have had a hard night. I think the Americans always look fleshy, even as an amateur when we fought the Americans, you know, they have that kind of style, but, you know, when the Americans, when they don't get it their own way, they fall the bits, they break up sort of, you know, it was like Jeff Casey as well, when he, you know, they're in there, they're, they're good and strong, they got all the skills, they're very fleshy, but when they're not getting their own way, sometimes they crumble, but um, there's no doubt about it, what a generation of fighters, I'm very, very lucky to be in that kind of era, and they be, they be able to go through in the two tours. I can't myself lucky having such a long career, um, you know, and so many wins. I have a good a good career, and some of the some of the defeats I've had, I've, I was able to kind of go back and kind of on over on overturn. And some of them I think were maybe like the the Tipsco one, the the draw in Dublin. They're ones that maybe I think the shooter went the other way. Yeah, well, no doubt, and you, you're gonna ha- over the over forty plus professional fights. You're gonna have all sorts of ones, and the interesting yeah. career that you had, where you fought so many championship fights and away homes, you're gonna have all sort all manner of yeah. fights that some you regret, some you'd love to do again. But Brian yeah. McGee, it's been absolutely brilliant to have you today on Rocky Road Rewind. Uh, great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.